Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. Today's episode is the last in our three episode series covering our hugely popular Meet the Nominees feature film symposium. Now in its 25th year, the event is a roundtable discussion with the directors nominated for the Guild's Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film. Alejandro Inaritu, the director of The Revenant, Tom McCarthy, the director of Spotlight, Adam McKay, the director of The Big Short, George Miller, the director of Mad Max Fury Road, and Ridley Scott, the director of The Martian, all gathered at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles to discuss the making of their films with moderator Jeremy Kagan. So please enjoy part three of our Meet the Nominees episodes and hear about how our nominees staged complicated scenes with actors, extras, stuntmen, crew members, and even moving vehicles, as well as the challenges they faced and discoveries they made during the editorial process. Enjoy. Let's talk um, a a bit more about staging. The piece, uh, Tom, that you just showed us, the choices of these various locations that you had as they're assembling information. You do it a number of times in the film. Uh, how did you come about doing and choosing in what spaces? And particularly actually where they, there are actually two times. There's one, one where they go to the various, this is one that's research one. There's another one where they're going and doing a series of interviews. How did those uh, decisions come up for you to what places you're going to choose and how are you going to devise it? Did Production designers come with uh, photographs of spaces. What, how did this emerge? Look, I think one of the great challenges of this piece was how to make information um, cinematic, but at the same point remaining true to what it is, which is a very kind of blue-collar, no-frills approach to work, right? These guys are sort of just doing their job every day in these crappy little offices, but it's incredibly important work. We wanted to capture that and be faithful to that and let that sort of inspire our aesthetic as much as possible. I felt like if I ever got too fancy, too sexy, too frivolous, anything with the camera that didn't represent the work and who these people were, I would lose the sort of authenticity of the of the piece. Um, and specifically the challenge, how to, how to, it was, I think in many ways, this movie became a, st- for me, early on, it became a study of craft because I realized, I don't think most people realize or have respect uh, maybe enough for the craft of journalism, especially today where everyone on the, has a blog and a tweet and, and they're all citizen journalists of the world. And I don't think that's true. I think everyone is entitled to their opinion. That's all it is. I think really great journalists are experienced. They do their job. They're incredible writers, incredible editors. They understand their... So I think what we really started to geek out on early was that craft and capturing all those little bits and pieces and remaining faithful to that and never romanticizing it or sensationalizing it, um, either the, the, the craft or the topic of sexual abuse. Um, so uh, we really kind of committed to that early and how would we show that and make it one from moment to moment both different and compelling and and, may, and, and in some way explain, wow, this is tedious work, like that section. You know, for two weeks they stopped everything because, you know, this is when Excel spreadsheets were about at the, you know, peak of technology in terms of the work they were doing. There was no Google yet, none of that existed. But they, for you know, they realized they had these directories in their basement that the church put out, which basically, if they did their work as they did in that scene and worked backwards, they could identify 
bad priests because the church would take them out and label them as on sick leave or something like that. So they spent two to three weeks. That's all they did. They said we all stopped all other aspects of our investigation and just poured through these. We took them home with us. We just did it to our eyes were falling out. And, and, and I think, well, we, our job is to try to capture that and one, capture the tedium and the relentlessness of it, but at the same point, you know, make it something you could watch so you didn't want to blow your head off, you know? And the choices, did were these choices pre-production choices? Were they production uh, choices? I think that, yeah, they started with uh, the script, understanding what that process was, understanding, look, hopefully every clip of that says a little bit about who those people are. Mike Rosendez at that point was spending a lot of time either working or in a bar, so we see him in a bar doing it and getting cheap pizza, you know, Sasha's at home. Uh, people are different places doing their work. Uh, there's one scene where we see Robbie in the cafeteria and you see BC High right across the street, another massive institution that plays plays later on in the, in the movie. So it was trying to find these things that would both continue to inform story, even unconsciously or subconsciously, but propel the action. And when you would stage a scene with your actors, because you have these serious dialogue scenes with yeah. this, um, what is your process? Do you let the actors find the space? Do you have, actually have a design? We were looking at Alejandro where it has to be very, very specifically done. How would you go about you know, doing a scene that has five or six characters in it and they're in fact talking to each other. What's the staging, what's the process where you find where they're gonna sit, where they're gonna stand? How does that emerge for you? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, totally different processes, those two, right? Uh, but I will think, you know, to some degree, that's what I use rehearsals for. Alejandro mentioned Sydney's book, which is a great book. If, you, if anyone hasn't read it, you should. It's, it's a great book. Uh, Sydney went as far to actually block in rehearsals. Uh, he would tape it out, like right. in theater, and do that. And I come from the theater, and I respect that, but I just never feel like that's helpful to me because of location. Yeah. So uh, normally, I make, my rehearsals are for understanding the material, getting around the same page, and then, you know, just show up and, and just clear the set, just work with the actors for as long as I need to. And, you know, with these guys, we had a very good group of actors who were moving very quickly because they understood the material, they understood where there had to be, there was no uh, grandstanding necessary, and I think, you know, one when, thing when that's... You, when you were working with them, would you, um, first just, if you're on the set and you're just working with your actors at this moment, would you let them sort of run lines before you would say, you say, or they say, gosh, if I leaned up against the wall, this would be, or, um, again, that just stays um, Yeah, look, I... It, hopefully, when you get, look, I'm someone who thinks good actors, smart actors can add a lot to a scene. <laughs> and I do like to listen. Uh, there obviously comes a point where you have to stop listening and make some calls because you got to get through the day. Um, and, you know, sometimes, especially with a group like this, they will, they'll keep going. Um, and, uh, we had one scene at the end of the movie where it just became a, it's the one time we didn't make our day. Uh, and it was the scene in Marty Barron's office where Robbie confesses to the 20 priests. And it was because there was so much information and so much at stake. So many people were coming into the scenes from different points of view that we just spent hours talking about. It. I mean, hours. It was endless. And I normally don't allow that to happen. But for some reason, I thought for that scene, it was interesting. Um, and it was helpful. Um, but you know, usually it's just, getting a rough idea of the scene. Everyone, look, in this, everyone has a position in this movie, so they know their space. You know, uh, they couldn't just suddenly say, oh, I feel like, you know, sauntering over there. Good actors won't do that. They'll know their purpose in that scene. So it's providing those moments, and that's not to say there aren't moments where there's just conflict. Hopefully you have that every day on some level, otherwise it's a really boring set, you know. Uh, but you, you I, I, for me, it's just like trying to find the truth of the scene, sending them away, and then figuring it out with my cinematographer, with Masa. Alejandro, there's a, there's a, if I was thinking back to George and you both sitting next to each other and both having fights, uh, that you showed that, that fight. 
the fight, if I remember correctly, at the end, I'm talking about staging now, the fight between uh, Fitzgerald and, uh, and uh, Glass at the end, if I remember correctly, there's no cut. How did you guys rehearse this? Uh, again, it was uh, um, um, a long uh, discussion of, of, you know, what I wanted to do was to, obviously, these men at that time, you know, they only eat meat, right? Only animal. And they um, <laughs> eat an amount of pounds of animal. They were animal pelts. And they became in the status of animal, living in those conditions, honestly. And... Uh, so I want to represent that man against nature, man against man, and 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 suddenly kind of I want to remind that that bear is just another creature that is an extension of our own reality in this organism. So we are just another kind of animal. That's it. And suddenly this man, I want to become a very uh, two animals uh, again uh, fighting uh, against each other, and uh, I want to be brutal, not romanticized. Always I'm terrified to shoot violence because honestly, I don't know why, but violence looks so cool in screen. And that terrifying me because we have make of violence a very hip, a very cool thing. And we have enhanced violence by doing that because it looks amazing. And why? I don't know. But aesthetically, it's brutally, you hate it, but you can't stop watching. And I come from a very violent country, which is not fun and not hip to see that. And I always try to question myself exactly the consequences of violence and what that means. And I want this to not be a fancy fight. I want to be as brutal and disgusting and, violent. I mean, I don't know, pathetic in that sense. And uh, so talking first, uh, this was one of those kind of accidents that we have that we lost the snow and that we have to, uh, you know, look for snow in the summer in New Zealand and all around Chile. And then we found this, the last airport of this continent, that is Ushuaia, which is at the end of the world. And we have this amazing location. So we found this river that in a way is similar to the, to the geography of the, the last battle that we have shot all the, just before when they go into that slide, we have shot everything in Calgary. So we, now we have to find something that match geographically to that in the summer with snow and nobody guaranteed that. So we found this piece. This river was perfect to allow a body to go to courses to cross all those technical things. But then we have to prepare the whole terrain and you know rocks taken out and all that thing. So we prepared the thing and with Doc Coleman, we start in Chibo, we start doing several blockings of the fight again yes. with stunts and find what will be truth and what can be you know, understood the intentions of all these characters, but at the same time, and that the violence that they inflict to each other can be brutal, but at the same time, you know, obviously stretch a little bit the possibilities of the physicality of it, but at the same time, still in the real uh, kind of thing. And uh, so anyway, we, we try many things, and it's again like a ballet. And then you, when Doc presents something, we were, I start changing some things, how many steps, how we can go from here to here. And then when Chibo got the camera, we start going and then sometimes we need to subordinate the movement to the camera and sometimes the camera has to subordinate to the need of the action. So finding exactly the framing bit by bit. Okay, from here, he takes book and then we go here. So what's like molecularly, as you basically do molecular work with a scene, 
we were molecularly understanding piece by piece. And then, okay, now how is it going to work? And then the stunts do it, the actors see it, they shit their pants, they say, really? Yes, really? And then they start doing it. How long, did it take, how long did it take them to get ready so that you could actually shoot the two uh, actors? I think, it, it, I think it, it didn't take a lot. I have to say that, you know, fortunately, Leo and Tom are really young and very well fit. I think you have experience with this guy. He's, he's like a maniac of that. He's scary. And uh, he always was doing me things like that. He said that he can kill a guy in two seconds, and I believe it. He almost <laughs> killed me, like, here and here and here. And he, he's, like a, he's like a very scary... Kind of so, so Tom is really into that, and uh, so he, I didn't have problem with that. And Leo is very physical at the same time, so I think, and they are very good friends. That help a lot. So they have fun in a way. It was like kind of wrestling with a friend, and little by little, dog was guiding them for not hurt themselves. And there, be safe. There's there's blood that occurs within that. Were there blood bags that were part of? Yes, it? some blood, and then the, the the knives do have some blood. So those kind of accidents. Said, yeah, but this is. The blocking of that, that was, uh, that was a fun part, actually, I think. I think how many days do you think you shot? How many times no, did you no, shoot? No, no, no. I shot a couple of times. That's, that's two, it? two takes. Same yeah, thing? Yeah, I mean, that's, what, that's the advantage of that. We rehearse a lot of, lot of, lot of times in a hotel with some, you know, cautions and everything. And then once everything is understood, again, we go to that uh, thing of, of, of the, the adrenaline to be present. And I think, as they were saying, I think actors is, is, is acting is reacting. And they, most of the most beautiful thing is everything can be planned and meticulous. But when the actor is good, is reacting to the moment. And I think Tom and all the guys are, every time that nature gives us something, I didn't have to remind them to be cold because they were really cold. Okay. And so they were really <laughs> concentrated just in the, in the thing. And when they hear a bird or something, they, they were react. reacting okay. and that adds the trueness True. of the thing. And in yeah. this case, they were really into that. Though. George, you have also, thank you. You have also this, which we saw now, a complex fight with all of these characters. How did that staging emerge for you? Well, in this film, that was the equivalent of a dialogue scene. Uh, uh, the, it's where the characters meet, the, the, the lead characters meet. It was very, very important to structure in a way where there was always a rising conflict and that everybody behaved because it was all the principal cast, really. Uh, everyone behaved according to their, their character. So it was naturally... Um, very, very, very carefully prepared, um, and also, also the problem with uh, with these things. If you just kind of just do your kind of standard fight, I think I think we 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 you know we, we kind of glaze over as an audience. So it had to be in a sense uniquely familiar. So it was it was Max who had a mask, a, a chain. Um, through a door onto an unconscious Nux and and uh, Furiosa who didn't have her arm and a shotgun that really didn't have any bullets and and all these things um, and and girls who, the, the the girls uh, the wives who'd never ever probably seen any violence being brave brave enough to get involved so all of that was very carefully choreographed again the staging uh, we uh, was done through the stunt crew. And in the same way that we and block it said, out. Sorry. Would you have, because there, there are, what, six, seven, eight people in this particular scene, would you have six or seven, eight stunt people block it for you before? Yeah. We, we, uh, we, they would, 
for a film like this, you'd have everyone would have a matching stunt person, and um, the the scene was storyboarded, but then it had to become real, so that it was blocked out. That was done with the stunt crew, and at a certain point, uh, Tom's stunt double Jacob would take. It was Jacob? Yeah, the same. Yeah, it's good. I mean, and and he's good. They, they look the same. It's incredible. They look the same. They look the same. And, ja- and, ja- and ja- Jacob's also very, very skilled. And they have, it's trust, isn't it? It's a, it's incredible. Being, say. Anyway, the point being is that uh, Jacob uh, would would basically – you're right. Tom is very, very skilled, as is Charlize. They, 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 they'd observe and pick it up really quickly. And then they'd swap – and if there's something where there might be some risk to one of the actor, they they they'd swap. In, in other words, it might be Tom uh, uh, Tom Hardy uh, working with Charlize's uh, double Dana, um, or vice versa. So mix and matching through all of that—that's how the sequence is put. To, is and put how many together. days do you, would it would it would it be in preparation, and where many days in shooting? Uh, I would say. Over the period, um, there would be a lot of preparation. It might be several days. PJ Voten, who's uh, is an extraordinary AD and one of the producers of the film. How many days do we take to shoot then? Five. Five days. Uh, five days to shoot. How many? The rehearsal was intermittent. I mean, we were rehearsing right. a lot of things. But five days act, uh, with your actors then and actually shooting yeah. that sequence. Yeah. Yeah. You know what, what I learned. I don't know, George, if, if it was the same, it was the first film that I did with this kind of action. And what I learned of action is like almost like it has to be precise, obviously, because you you cannot uh, put in danger the thing. But it's like making love a scenes, like sex scenes. They have to be exactly incredible thing. And what I found that it was very challenging. That is not the action or the physical thing, but is if if then the transition of what that scene is about. Then to go to the close-up and the, the transition from that physicality to some emotion, that was the, the that difficult was the part. You know, the, like like where it goes at because right. it's not like the action. It's like now what the actor right. feels after that. That's what I found that is the the tricky part of those. But you things. also have you made a choices in 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 from from um, your your hero now his non-use of language in the beginning of that sequence where he doesn't speak to them, he gestures to them. There, it, it's, it's quite powerful in terms of who he is at this moment. Like, words mean nothing. Well, he's a pretty uh, reduced human being. He's, uh, he's, he's, caught, he's caught, he's trapped, he's branded, and he's used as a living blood bag. And he's totally passive. And, and, uh, and of course, he, and he's been alone. So he's not used to talking. And if you track the movie, he, his first word, uh, first on-camera line is in that scene where he says, water. water. Yeah. And, then, and then gradually stops grunting and then fuller sentences form. And by the time... Interesting about the word water. It's almost the last line in your movie on that type was water as well, considering where water is in all of our lives and how it's going to be affecting our lives. But before I go to that, I want to... In the... In the I have two more sets of questions for you, but in in really in the staging of the sandstorm in the beginning, where they're all outside before they actually leave Mars, in in setting that kind of thing up and getting the actors to sort of be in that moment and staging that scene, and I have no idea how you did it. It's darkness and all that phenomenal sort of sand that you either added or is part of it. Could you explain how that you you did stage that? 
Um, you, uh, I was on the stage, uh, in Budapest. There's a big stage there, bigger than the Bond stage, uh, where you got a 65 feet of the gantry. The cubic capacity is bigger than the Bond stage. And also by having a brand new green screen helps a lot. Brand new green is, gives you a quality. So the stuff shooting in Wadi Rum, Jordan, and on stage, I now can't tell the difference. It's, it's mix and match. Um, but the stage, for the storm, better do it in a low-key light because you're going get, to get away with more. Mm-hmm. But I want to be able to see everything, which is also very important. And how heavy is the storm? I don't care what you say. Those ridders with the big blades, they're not bloody good. They're only good from like six feet, honestly. So if you really want the serious stuff, I had two 707 engines doing this little uh, unlashed uh, planks. The problem is it burns kerosene. That's not too healthy. Um, and uh, But you need as much blast as possible because I want to blow the cameraman over as well as the actors. Uh, it's still not enough. So what I had is I had, if, if there's seven actors or whatever the number, I have seven actors with seven guys completely covered in black. Each actor's on a cable. So they're fighting the guy who's holding them back. He's in black because I know I'm not going to see him back there. So they're on about a 30 or 40 foot, 50 foot cable and they're going to jerk them around. It's not rehearsed. You just say action and then never, they're trying to do the dialogue at the same time. I've got a guy's like an anchor yanking them as wind would. would block. If that wind is 180K, which it would be, uh, you, would, you would never know where it was coming from. So I try and throw the axes as much as possible and at the end of it, check, you okay? Yeah, we love it. Okay, let's go again. Good. And uh, we go again, and whatever your wind machines are, whatever your combinations, because by then you get your combinations down to too much dust, white blocks it out, too much smoke blocks it out. You want hard vermiculite with a teeny bit of mixture. It's like vo- mixing a vodka martini, actually. Not too much vermouth. <laughs> um, uh, so you can see through it, because then I know it's still not going to be enough. So then I'll have the digital house will lo- lay over each shot, very sharp, uh, vermiculite, as it were, fake digital vermiculite. So you gradually layer it in it. I love to grade the movies afterwards, so I sit down. Usually the cameraman's gone, so I like I grade the whole movie. It's, and it's fast. It's great. How, and I grade, when you have that those layers over, you can then literally grade them, say more, 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 less, 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 or darker, darker. So it's all in the grading. In the- and the acting. The, the last two questions: Where are you in the editing room in your process? Are you are you at home giving notes to your editor somewhere else? Are you in the editing room? What's your process of editing right I, now? And I, I know tend, it's changed since we've been working. I, I tend to overlap. Once I've got a, into a director's cut, I, I'm already prepping the next one. I'm shooting in eight weeks now in Australia, um, and so I've got a full crew there working right right now. So. I like to because I get really bored. And I think I've learned many different ways in the editing room. Sit there, choose the shot, choose the frame. And by the time, if you don't watch it, you're going to get really blunt. Uh, it's a bit like a comedian telling the joke. Two times, it's okay. Three times, four times, five times, I'm going to change the joke. And so, and the, also every edit is exclusive. It You must be very choosy about the number of times you sit down and watch the whole movie because you're going to get so bored with your own work that you're going to start uh, cutting things out that you shouldn't be. 
So I always watch the so incrementally, scene by scene, never put together. And there's that, that, there was always the horrible day. That's the only day I started to get anxious. I'm going to watch the director the full cut. Find myself with an editor. You know it's going to be too long. Uh, usually it's, you know, there's going to be some good stuff and there's going to be some long stuff. But the prep in the editing room, I went from choosing everything to uh, now when I'm shooting, this requires a very good editor, by the way. And I work with uh, three editors, three different editors, mostly Petros Garnier. I turn them loose. I see the rushes, say, that's good, that's good, that's good. Every night I see rushes. Afterwards, so say, right, uh, can I see what you cut today? See what I cut today? Okay, that's working. Leave it for now. Move on. So by the time we get to the end of the movie, I've pretty well two and a half weeks after director's cut. And then I always know I can remember every shot and where which was the better one for lighter, for performance, or speed, or whatever it is. There's always that shot you remember. It's odd how you remember everything. And at, so they can come later. I don't pick you, get choosy. The during up, I want to get it on the wall. I want to see it. And then from there, I um, leave the editor to it. You said, I've got a reel. I want to come see a reel. I'm going to see a reel. Okay. And what's interesting, by not being there, I'll sit there with a reel and uh, make notes. And what's interesting, usually at the end of it, the editor might say, bugger. You're absolutely right. I've been thinking about half those things myself, but I want to hear what you thought. So in a funny kind of way, it's a primitive computer. You know, so I'm, I'm staying the freshman, and he's getting blunt in that room. I don't care who you are. That's what happens, okay? Then uh, by the time we get to the director's cut, the same thing happens. Right now, that's how I work. Um, don't sit there. Got it. Start thinking about the next one. Got it. George, where are you in the editing room? Are you, what's your process? Well, in the past, I've been there for every cut, um, every, every, literally every, every splice in the old days. Um, in, this film was atypical in that we, we basically had to shoot in Africa, but we were editing rooms back in Australia. Right. And really, I'd look at dailies on the iPad, uh, usually on, on the long trip home. And uh, and back in Australia, Margaret Siegel, who also happens to be my wife, was was cutting the movie, so it was dumped in her lap, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, I uh, would work, uh, uh, you know, would would see what was happening in the cut, but when we came up against what seemed to be an intractable problem, because this was a very complex movie to to keep a kind of coherence, a spatial coherence with all this stuff going on uh, is really, really important. There had to be very rigorous causal relationship one shot to the next. At the same time, it's not just colour and movement. You're really trying to, to get those moments where there is a progression of, 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 of character and, 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 and the relationship of character and the information when the, the exposition, when the audience needed the exposition. The withholding of information, and then you know, the, the, I, I, I like the notion of drama being the well-orchestrated withholding of information, mm. and mm. and um, yes. and Margaret was uh, was such that um, uh, if there was a problem, we discuss it, and the best thing for me was to walk away and give her the time, and 
and she and she come uh, and you usually find a really really good uh, response. Um, but th that that thing of the being blunted was, is very very interesting because you know I, I very very soon you get to you know the rhythm of the movie and so on and I you know I often think of Percy Sledge. You remember Percy Sledge who, who sang that song when a man loves a woman yeah. and. Uh, he, he sang it every night almost for 23 years. And could you imagine what that would, having that same thing? Well, it's exactly the same thing with the movie. And one of the, one of the things I learned, you know, in the old days when painters used to look at their composition in the mirror, nowadays you can flip the screen. It's quite a shocking thing because just like a composer would remember the same music we have intense memory, so, so it's burnt into your brain. And flipping it is really, really interesting because you do not rec you, you, your brain is already almost uh, hardwired to see it a certain way. So, um, so it's all about dynamics. And if you if you get blunt, you're going to lose the dynamic. So you've got to step back and keep constantly being fresh. Like being a painter, I'm a painter, and you step back, you stare at it, and walk away and leave it, or. Uh, like Marty does, which I suddenly realized it, it kind of makes sense, but it does prolong your process. He will cut and then go on holiday and, and return and look at it like six months later. I said, how does he do that? But I think he comes back and goes, oh, my God, and then go, what, that, 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 yep. that, and goes, boom, 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 boom. Yep. Makes sense. It's sharpness, isn't it? It, it, it? It's what? Sharpness. Sharpness. Yes. It's, it, there is a... There is a a way that you can almost force the amnesia if you get into the space and you say, I've never seen this before, uh, where you can watch it and, and, and you're watching it and it's a little bit like running your hand over, uh, you know, some wood, uh, sandpapered wood and you, and you feel a little glitch, you feel a little glitch and you say, okay, we've, we've got a problem there. But it's a big, it's a tricky, tricky thing. Uh, um, and, but you, uh, and it varies film to film. In the past, you know, I've often done a lot of editing. Now, the myself. technology has changed so much for all of us that I wonder whether you are also, how that has affected you in the editing room for both of you. I mean, obviously, you, faster. everything's faster. and everything's It's way easy. faster. And to some degree, that's an incredible advantage. But in another degree, that also may not allow you to, in fact, both of you are talking about, have the perspective you're talking about. I, I, I think if you're aware that you need the perspective, uh, you can find a way to, to get it. You can, mm -hmm. It might be just, you know, w going for a walk around the block. It might be uh, because what one of the major jobs of the of, of the filmmaker is basically to be the guardian of the narrative. The you're there trying to see every part in the context of the whole, and the whole is always privileged over the parts. Mm -hmm. that, 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 and, and providing you know that, and you and and you and you. It's a mosaic art. It's right. how it's it's very much like music, and the way the little bits fit together, you're trying to um, you're, you're trying to keep dispassionate about it, not getting to carry none of the emotion you might have had on the set or whatever your feeling was on set. Hmm. On set, I always like to be neutral, like really neutral. Hmm. Uh, if, you, if you're feeling down, that that's okay. If you're feeling euphoric. Uh, uh, that that's that's dangerous because everything is good. I, I, I don't know how people made movies on cocaine because uh, <laughs> everything would have been great. 
I just don't know how to do it. So you, you, I think you look for those sort of neutral places to let the footage uh, do the work. Speak to you. Got it. Alejandro, where are you in the editing process, particularly on this film? I, I think very much, uh, you know, what Ridley and George has said is, is basically the whole thing. I, for me, it has been changing the same. I... I I, I edit myself Amores Perros, my first film in my studio, and I was getting crazy. It was a horror, eight months by myself in the office doing it, and it, it was trying to find the whole thing. And then fortunately, in 21 Grams, I find uh, a great partner, which is Stephen Mitrione, which we have been, you know, he has been editing my film since then, which is, was great, because I think we have developed for all, all these years kind of a, kind of a silent communication uh, 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 he has great taste. He understands what I like, what I respond to. Um, I spoke with him in great length. What is the objective of each scene? What I'm trying to get. I'm very close to because I really enjoy it. I, I think really, I think uh, editing is, is is rewriting the film. I think literally you can destroy a good performance or a good film in the editing room or you can save and make an incredible scene that didn't exist and you can rewrite it in the editing room. Yeah. And so I'm a true believer in that process. I understand it very well. Um, uh, I'm a frustrated musician, so I think everything is like music, and, and rhythm is all. It, 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 honestly, rhythm is goth, and, and if you don't have rhythm or the film doesn't have rhythm, no matter how good it is, it will never get into people's vein. Nobody will be moving the feet emotionally, so you have to find that. And for me, it, it takes me time because... I'm uh, absolutely a, 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 a chronic, unsatisfied person. I'm never happy about it. And I just think that every time can be better and better. And, and, and I like it. And then it's true the next day I arrive and it's a piece of shit. And one day I'm like the greatest. And the next day I want to commit suicide. And it's like, so things are not working. And then suddenly works. But then, so it's a, it's a little bit struggling process for me. Joyful, but struggling. I, I'm not saying that I'm bipolar. Maybe I am. I don't know. <laughs> no, but it's just like it's just my my mood change. Uh, you know, my relation with the film evolves every day, yeah. and um, hmm. so I try things. I don't restrict myself to try things. In this case, it was particularly very strange because we shot the film, and then because we were caught without snow, I uh, we were planning to shoot the. So suddenly, I went to came to LA. With a very strange situation, I have most of the film, but I didn't have the ending of the film, and I didn't have the beginning of the film, and I didn't have a very important middle section of the film. So I have like a like a very strange thing. So I start editing as we were in pre-production, looking for finishing the film when we have to release on December. So it was a very stressful. I have never been in a situation like that. Normally, I take time to edit, and it's joyful, and then the music. This time was literally a torture, because I was editing something without the right pieces in pre-production, solving problems that probably will never be. So, I mean, it was very weird. Anyway, I have the piece, and then when I shoot finally the ending and the beginning and all that, when I integrate it, it's basically all these parts of all the back, all these kind of delusion, when he's delusional right. in sickness, and he's memorizing his wife and who he was and all this dream sequence, every time that I put them together, they mean different things in the film, depending on how long they were, where I put it, you know. So all these little things of the super, you know, the, those mystical things of him, internal travels, how the people will relate internally with the guy that hasn't talked one word in the whole film. I want the people to get what is was going into him. It was so 
delicate clockwork because if it was too much, it was too corny, it was too little, there nobody. So it that took me a lot of time to find where those pieces will be. Uh-huh. And we did several things. And then, as Ridley said, when you get too close and you lose perspective or enthusiasm, that's the most dangerous thing because I compare this like when you are in a party and you have drink a little bit too much and you know that if you drink the last vodka, you know that you will do the re- and you will be lost. So you have to be careful when is that last drink. And, and so I, I, I know that I have to solve a lot of things, but I know that I spend more time in that room than I will be even useless to the editor. So I agree with Ridley. I have to go out, let him try some things and then come back. But in this case, unfortunately, normally I do that. In this case, I didn't have time. Right. I really need to deliver the film. So it was horrible because I know that I was not enjoying anymore. But then you have to make the best decision. And the, the, sometimes I, I have become very cynical with myself. I, I cut my fingers. I don't care how good the scene it is. If the film doesn't serve, as you said, the whole, even if it's the best scene I have shot or the best moment and an actor will hate me, I cut my fingers and that's it. And in this case, which I took out so much great things. And, but... But, but I didn't care. I, I become very, I'm a butcher. I'm Got a sorry. <laughs> and that's the editor is it. butcher. And anyway, it, it's, it. It, it's beautiful. It's, yeah. I, I think the best line was that you, Jean-Luc Godard said that every frame is a moral decision. And if you get to that scare that every, one frame more or one frame less, and I believe that one frame more sometimes has changed the whole meaning of a, of a scene. And that's super scary to find because then you wrote no, the responsibility you have finding every second of your film. Yes, 24 papers of the second, every one. Tom, for you, where are you in the editing room? I'm probably back where these guys were a little while ago. Where I'm present still all the time. I've done fine films with my editor, Tom McCardle. We have a very specific way of working. I was take, probably taking a few more breaks, like giving him, I'd come in half day. But the editing room's a block from my house, so I, I'd pop in more often than he probably liked. Um, but, you know, I think with this specific film, more than our other films, we did a lot of really, we did a lot of edit room micro screenings for seven, five, seven, eight people, just as hopefully people not connected with the film industry at all, just friends. It's a great thing about living in New York. We can find people who aren't connected to the film industry. And so we would, <laughs> we would it's kind of true, right? We would, and so we would, uh, we would do that. And it was really helpful just for information, just because right. it was so informationally driven. And also, uh, you know, we would just find exciting, you know, we'd start to realize where we could hang our hat on the script. For instance, you know, Alejandro mentioned the, the survivors and those performances earlier. And very early on, almost everyone we had come in, and these are people who aren't necessarily uh, as adept or articulate about talking about cuts as soon as they end. So it's really exciting because you're pushing them to talk about it. And to the one, people would say, when I met that first survivor, Phil Saviano, I was like emotionally connected to the movie. Up to that part, I was intellectually mm-hmm. interested, but I met Phil and my heart was in the movie. And so we, we'd be like, when do we meet Phil? Somewhere, end of second reel. We got a sense of what we're doing and maybe how quickly we want to get there. Uh, and that, that, those, that process was just really interesting. And also, you know, it is a love-hate with that room because it's brutal, right? Because it's honest. And what you are confronted with often are your mistakes. You know, you gloss over your victories, you take them for granted, and then you just see all your mistakes and, and you get very personal because you feel like you were the guy out there fighting the fight and you came back with like, you know, squirrel meat or something. And, and, and I feel 
like with this one, it's very helpful us to sit in a room just behind people and just kind of feel, physically feel them, what they're doing, how they're connecting, when they're leaning forward. And I think all of my films, as my editor always points out, start a little slow. I, 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 it's on purpose. I like people to have to lean in to pay attention, to make that decision, to engage with the movie or not. Um, and, uh, um, you know, and I think with this one, we really had to find that balance because we had a long way to go. Um, Adam, you're, the complexity of the editing of this movie is actually pretty remarkable. Um, from individual scenes where you're cutting to different, to, to slowing things down. I'm just thinking when you meet Dr. Barry for the first time, the choices that you've made in the, the some of them may have been in the shooting, but some of them very well may have been editorially, and obviously all the breaks and all the explanations of various times. What was this editing process for you, and what is it when you're in the editing room? Well, you know, yeah, we, we a lot of that was in the script with the explanations from the iconic kind of pop celebrities and the slowdowns and the freeze frames, but really? what happened was, uh, you know, half of, directoring, half of uh, directing is hiring really great people, and we got uh, Hank Corwin, who's an amazing editor, so early on when I met with him, I told him, I said, go to town. Go take any germ of what we have and just try what you want to try. And he was like, really? I'm not going to get fired? And uh, I was like, no, no, go for it. So I would come in every week and kind of look at some rough cut scenes he had. And they were really exciting. And some of them I knew went too far, but I didn't say anything at that point. Um, so I kind of started the first half of our editing process, almost like a uh, hippie teacher from like the 1970s who was like, refused to give out grades and everyone's cool. <laughs> and then what happens is we start to get the movie. The movie starts to come into shape and then I become like Otto Preminger. Then it's like, you know, then I'm doing what Alejandro was talking about. I'm counting frames and I'm, I really treat it like we've got two hours of like how often in anyone's life do they get to somewhat, you know, curate two hours. And I treat every second of that like it's huge. So then Hank was very surprised because I started going through the movie and then being quite brutal on it and saying, no, no, trim three frames off here. Make sure this happens here. Bring this voice in here. And he was like, wow, what happened to you? You know? <laughs> So the best moment was I, we would screen every week because we, this movie's built, the big short's built to have a conversation with the audience. We needed to see how the audience was interacting. And just like Tom said, you're sitting in that audience, you can feel it when you're part of a, not even so much looking at the cards or scores, but just feeling an audience interacting with it. So it accelerated our editing process because almost every week I was screening with a test audience just to see how they felt. So one night it was like one in the morning and we're cranking away and Hank's tired and he just gets frustrated and he's like, you know what? Why are we doing another screening? F them. F them. <laughs> and there's a long beat and I just go, Hank, who's them? <laughs> and he goes, I don't know. I'm tired. <laughs> and I'm like, Hank, them is me. <laughs> he's like, I'm just tired. So... So yeah, it was really two gears. The one gear was like exploration. We brought our composer in really early. So he was like writing music for these kind of experimental scenes that we were just trying. Everything was open. We tried everything. And then the second gear is 
now let's make a movie. And then it becomes kind of a different gear. So we, this is really a two-year editing process for you? What's that? Was it a two-year editing process for you? Two gears. Two gears. Two gears. Ah, boy, I love the idea of two years. Two gears. I'm, I'm I actually, better. I actually just produced on a movie that was a year and a half editing process. Not fun. <laughs> uh, no, this was just two gears. You, you can you can clearly feel it go from exploration to we're now making a movie, and I find both equally as enjoyable. Um, I'm thinking, of, you know, just, because you said something in the script. When we first actually meet Bauman, he's walking across the street in New York on that telephone, and there are a number of freeze frames and there are a number of cutaways as well. Was this all scripted, or is there a as we were all talking about, are you rewriting your movie in the editing room? So here's what it is. So yes, they were scripted. There were definitely voiceover with implied freeze frames there. But what happens in the edit room is Hank did this beautiful thing with Carell in the scene that you guys saw, which I had written freeze frame, but he did a double freeze frame and he chopped up the dialogue. And this is what a great editor does for you. And I was like, oh, that is really cool. And out of nowhere, he pulled in that Guns N' Roses song. And I told him, I go, you know, I've used that song in another movie. And he's like, it works. And I was like, eh, looks like we're using it again. So it, it, it just all became expanding on the movie. The big one was the fact that we wanted to show where American culture was at while we were all missing this really obvious bubble. If you look at the math now, it was so obvious, the housing bubble and the collapse that was coming. And what were we thinking about? So we had the idea of like, I had written into the script that you would see music videos, cutaways of kind of trash news. Um, and Hank really took that and went even further. And he just, at one point, his boldest choice was he had this ludicrous video that off of Christian Bale, he just bops into this ludicrous video and it took me like three minutes to adjust to it. And then I was like, I like that. And then all of a sudden that started changing the movie where we could jump into American culture whenever we wanted. And the chapter headings were discovered in the edit room as well, where we would do a quote and then show images of American and society. I'm, I'm, I'm told your famous quote about, about from the Washington DC bar, which I love very much, which is truth is poetry and everybody hates poetry, Yeah, is actually your line. <laughs> yeah. we. We looked high and low for quotes for that, and uh, I finally said, like, I want a line that says something like, truth is like poetry, and everyone hates poetry. And Hank was like, let's just put that in. <laughs> and I'm like, who, you can't attribute it to someone. I should have called Tom and begged him to let me attribute it to him. But um, <laughs> So I finally, at one point, uh, put the old baseball manager, Billy Martin, and uh, and then I thought like oh probably like Deborah Martin his daughter is gonna call and sue us or something so uh, when in doubt just always say overheard in a blank <laughs> blank blank so yeah <laughs> that that quote's fake the other two are real the other All two right. are definitely real advice to a new director new director shoot shoot stuff put it up online don't wait for your opportunity don't wait for your connection uh, grab cameras there's tons of them now they're cheap. The internet is an amazing thing. Uh, if you're in some weird town in North Dakota, start a film festival. Just shoot, 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 shoot. Don't wait for it to come to you. Advice to a new director, Tom. Uh, find some good people to collaborate with. Like find your little posse. Find some people that like you think like you do or don't think like you do and engage with them and surround mm -hmm. yourself with those people. I think young artists need that. Great. I'll have no advice to a new director. I think not be, uh, you know, liberate from fear of failure. You know, I think that, uh, yeah, learn 
to be humble, to be learning while you are doing things, because that's the only way you will realize that you are moving or what is going wrong, but conceptualize uh, things and not doing it by fear to fail. Uh, that's the worst trap. So doing it liberate you from fear just right. by doing it. Right. George? Um, definitely should, regardless, and really try to shoot something that you really want to say. Find things that you really want to say. Ridley, vice new well, director. If I'd realized what I know, know now, I'd have been a hedge fund trader. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is f***ing hard work. Are you all directors in this room? I, I, all, all directors, producers, right. Um, it's tough, correct? Yeah. It's tough. And the f best line ever in advertising, which is also a lesson in life, is just do it. Nike. Well, perfect to stop this part because you all do it so well and thank you for sharing with us. We hope you enjoyed listening to part three of this exclusive discussion. You can watch the full video of the Feature Film Symposium and many other director Q&As on our website at dga.org slash events. Please continue to check back for more feature film Q&As and expanded content from DGA events and the archive. And if you're enjoying the Director's Cut, please subscribe to it on iTunes or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. And leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. We hope you hear from us soon. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.